podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 18th of October. It is overcast and dreary as I speak. I hope you're all well. Hope you're all enjoying your weeks. Today is hump day. So we're approaching the weekend and the weekend will bring us the return of real football. No more of this international nonsense. Uh, We do have some more qualifiers to the European Championships of 2024. When I spoke to you all on Monday, we had six. We had Germany, Belgium, France, Portugal, Spain, and Scotland. Uh, Turkey added themselves to the mix. 
they might have already been qualified. But since then, Austria have qualified. They are a certainty to finish in the top two of Group F behind Belgium. So they will make their fourth appearance at a European Championship after 2008, 16 and 2020. And then England also confirmed uh, group winners in Group C after their 3-1 victory over Italy. This will be their 11th time at a European Championships. So uh, England, obviously a a regular at these tournaments. Uh, They weren't at 2008, but other than 2008, they've been at every tournament since 88. Um, Since 1980, it's only 84 and 08 that they have missed out on. And I think it's fair to say England will go to the competition as one of the favourites to win. They have a, a very strong squad, but I think, unfortunately, Garrett Southgate and the decisions that he makes is what will ultimately hamstring them. The decision to continue to play Harry Maguire. I mean, what are we doing here? Uh, the decision that Jordan Pickford is the undisputed number one, despite being, at best, England's third best goalkeeper. And I would argue the fourth best goalkeeper, because I would put, even though he's been injured and he hasn't played a bunch, I'd still put Dean Henderson above Pickford. I think he's a better goalkeeper. I think you'd have to put Ramsdale above both of those, based on what we've seen over the last 18 months or so. Uh, even though Ramsdale has now lost his spot at Arsenal, like that's different to being like Everton's number one. And then the clear number one should be Nick Pope. He is England's best goalkeeper and has been for a couple of years, but it is what it is. Um, yeah, so England are in, Austria are in. Quite like this Austrian squad, there's there's a lot of talent in the squad. Uh, Max Vober, owned by Leeds, currently on loan at Bruns- Borussia Mönchengladbach. He's very good. Samson Baidu is one to keep an eye on, the central defender from Red Bull Salzburg. Very, very interesting young player. Uh, Ghanaian descent, really, really talented. Midfield, you've got your Jarver Schlagers. You've got Nicholas Sievold, who looks a real, real talent. Uh, Roman Schmidt is a good player, plays for Werder Bremen. You've got Baumgartner, who's also at Leipzig now. He's obviously very good. Conrad Lehmer is outstanding and has seemingly has bounced back fully now from the ankle injury. And Patrick Vimmer is maybe the most exciting player in this squad. Uh, you've got Sasa Kalasic as one of the striker options. There's not, there's not enough goals in this squad is my only real knock on them. Now, Marko Anatovic could potentially come back into the squad. I'm not, not hugely keen on him. David Alaba obviously is to come back in as well. Uh, he is the the the, the, na- the national captain, but there's a lot of talent here, and um, what there is more than anything is a very strong team unity. And I think you've got to give credit to Ralph Ranick for the job that he's done since taking over. Now he didn't take over a bad team; that should be pointed out. Austria were pretty strong before Ranick. And obviously, we're at the last European Championship, so it's not like a thing here where this has come out of nowhere, where they've just taken a a large leap forward. They got to the knockout stages of the last European Championship, which is only just over two years ago. So they've been building for the last few years, and 
I, I think I think they look pretty good ahead of this tournament. They're not going to win the tournament, but they'll be a tough out. They'll be a tough out. Uh, so in Group A, like I said the other day, Spain and Scotland are the top two. It remains to be seen what happens with Norway. Do they advance to the playoffs? Do they go out? Georgia will be in the playoffs because of the Nations League. Um, France are qualified. You'd be hard pushed to bet against the Netherlands taking the second automatic spot because they've got that game in hand on the Greeks. Uh, Ireland, seemingly, it's better for them to lose their next game than to win their next game, which is weird, but something to do with the Nations League nonsense. Uh, England through Ukraine three points clear of Italy, but Italy do have the game in hand. So Italy will at least be in the playoff. I'd expect them to get through. Turkey through. Wales looking a strong possibility, but Croatia have a better goal difference. We'll see how that one plays out. Group E, it's Albania looking really certain to get through. Top of the group, two games left. They will play the Faroe Islands at home. If they win that, they are certain of qualification. Their other game is Moldova away. And again, that's a game they should win. Albania will be the surprise package. And there's a couple of names in that Albanian squad that, you know, people should be aware of or should keep an eye out for. The names people will know will be Strakosha. He's obviously at, at Brentford now. Uh, Barisha, the goalkeeper, the captain, he's been knocking around for a long, long time. Elzit Heizic, the, the right back, who was at Napoli, now at Lazio. Jim City, the centre-back from Atalanta, another one who's who's very talented. In midfield, this is where they've they've got a couple of stands out. Bajrami of Sassuolo is really fun to watch. And Christian Aslani, I think, is excellent. The young Inter Milan midfielder. Uh, in attack, not so much of the the known quantities, but uh Ernest Mookie's getting a lot of a lot of talk. He's at Legia Warsaw. Players who weren't in the recent squad but are available for selection. Marash Kumbulla, I, I still have all my Marash Kumbulla stock. I'm still convinced that with the right move, <clears throat> he can he can go on to be a very, very good centre back for a long time. Who else do we have here? Uh, Anas Mehmeti, I don't know. He's at Bristol. Armando Broglie obviously could be the, the striker that they need. He's obviously injured at the moment. Um, having come back from the torn ACL, he's just picked up a knock. So fingers crossed there's nothing serious and, and he can come back in. But what a story this would be. Considering, considering how many really good players they've lost over the years who decided to play for different countries who had either were born in Albania and then their parents left the country when they were children or they were born abroad to Albanian parents. Like think of Shakiri, think of Granajaka, his brother played for, um, for Albania while he played for Switzerland. There's been a bunch like that over the years. Uh, it would be a tremendous story if Albania can qualify and then go and do themselves proud. And look, one point, and you've done yourself proud. One point in the tournament, you've done yourself proud. Um, huge, huge credit. Huge, huge credit 
has to go to their coach. Now, I am not a big fan of Silvino, but I think he's done really, really good. Now, they were on a good course before he took over. I think he's done a really good job since taking that position. And it's weird because he'd been dreadful in previous jobs. Uh, Belgium are qualified. Austria qualified. That solves Group F. Sweden are out, which is a little bit of a surprise considering they do have quite a bit of talent. But Azerbaijan and Estonia, who are below Sweden, can still qualify because of the Nations League nonsense. Uh, Group G, Hungary look a good bet to qualify. Serbia look a good bet to qualify. And then Montenegro... Unfortunately, the the nonsense with the... Like, Group G, right? Hungary are top, Serbia second, Montenegro third, Lithuania fourth, and Bulgaria are last. They haven't won a game. They've got two points. But yet, Bulgaria could advance to the playoffs, and the other two can't. Lithuania are already out. Montenegro can only qualify if they finish in the top two. They're five points behind Serbia. Now, they do have two games in hand, but they would need to win all their remaining games and hope that Serbia lose at home to a dreadful Bulgaria team. It makes no sense. Uh, Group H, Slovenia are top. This is a tight group. Slovenia and Denmark both on 19 points. Kazakhstan on... Uh, 15 points and Finland on four points. So Kazakhstan will be in the playoffs and Finland can potentially get to the playoffs or as things stand, they'll get to a playoff uh, because of the Nations League. Uh, Group I, Romania look a good bet to qualify. And my guess is it will be Switzerland who joined them. And then obviously Group J, it's Portugal, it looks like Slovakia will finish second. But what a story Luxembourg is. Like, they're currently third. They're assured of at least a playoff spot. Luxembourg used to be one of those teams that you really wanted in your group because you'd just go and smash them six or seven nil in both games. You know, you'd get them, Liechtenstein. To be fair, Latvia and Lithuania were like that. Many years ago, Turkey were one of those teams. Now, th- that was just a down period for the Turks rather than just what people thought of them. But there was a probably a six-year span where you wanted Turkey in your group. Bulgaria are that now. Like they're They've dropped off massively. But Luxembourg, they don't really have much history of doing particularly well at the international level. But this team have been hugely impressive, and they may not qualify. But what a story to just get to the playoffs. Now, they've got some players here that are very highly regarded. Thiago Pereira Cardoso is a 17-year-old keeper with Borussia Mönchengladbach. He's in their academy. He is seen as a near-certain future starter for Borussia Mönchengladbach. This is a young squad as well. If you look at the forward options, you've got a 21-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 28-year-old, a 26-year-old, and two 19-year-olds. In midfield, you've got a 29-year-old, two 26-year-olds, 
two 23-year-olds, a 22-year-old, and a 20-year-old. And even in the defence, you've got Lars Krogh-Gerson, uh, Gerson rather, who's 33. You've got Laurent Jans, who's been around for years and years. Uh, he's 31. Mika Pinto is 30. And then it's 26, 25. There's a 28-year-old, a 21-year-old, and a 20-year-old. It's a very, very young squad. And they've called up another bunch of youngsters in the last 12 months, a couple more 18-year-olds, a couple more 19-year-olds. There's a, a good youth movement. And it seems like perhaps they're finally being rewarded for an investment in youth football. And obviously now you're seeing a lot more the Dutch clubs, the German clubs, they're scouting in Luxembourg, among other places, looking for really talented young players. You can you can go back 25 years and look at a Luxembourg squad, and there might be two players that played outside of Luxembourg. Now you look at their squad, there's one one player in the in the senior squad who currently plays in Luxembourg, the backup goalkeeper. He's never been outside of Luxembourg for his career. The other two goalkeepers, one's in Belgium. Uh, he played against Liverpool recently for, for Union. And then the other's at, at, at Mönchengladbach. The fourth choice keeper is also in Belgium. In defence, you've got lads in France, Bulgaria, Sweden, Norway, Austria, Germany, the Netherlands, midfield, Russia, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Germany, Poland, and the same again in attack, Belgium, Germany, Turkey, and Italy. So, you know, this is a, a really promising sign for the future of Luxembourg football. And hopefully, hopefully this is not a one-off where they have this really good go, everything goes well, and then all of a sudden they just fall apart. Luca Holt, Luke Holtz, I should say, um, former Luxembourg international, is the manager and has been for the last 13 years. And before that, he was the manager during the 21s. And he is entirely responsible for the development of youth football in Luxembourg at the national level. Now, obviously, their FA and that have put a lot of money into the grassroots level and whatever else. Quite a cool story as well, where he was able to give his son uh, his international debut. Now, he did only play the once, which maybe suggests he wasn't quite of the level. But that does show that the level perhaps has risen because previously he probably would have just got 25 caps because the level wouldn't be any good. Anyway, we've rambled enough about, about Luxembourg. So um, the playoffs, I, I, I can't wrap my head around these playoffs at all. If anyone can explain them to me, please do. Uh, we'll do the news, then we'll take a break, and then we'll do Euro 2000. Uh, Slabhead Harry Maguire has said proper England fans don't boo players, which basically is him asking to be booed the next time he plays football for England, which is tremendous stuff. Uh, there's a piece about David Yanko. No, 
that's not it's David Hanko I'm thinking of. Uh, Jakob Janko. I didn't know this. Jakob Janko, the Czech international, has has come out as gay. And he said it, it makes him feel like now that like he can play without having to hide who he is. That's very, very cool. Good for him. Good for him. That's a massive step forward because he's an active international player. He's a very good player. Um, I didn't realize that he had come out months ago. Maybe I, maybe I talked about it before. I don't remember if, if I did. Uh, but he came out apparently in February. I don't remember that at all. My memory is terrible, though. So other than, you know, random games and stuff and random players, I I don't remember much of, of anything. Euro 2000. Happier times. Happier times. Tournament took place in Belgium and the Netherlands. And there was an even split of stadiums. We had four in Belgium. Four in the Netherlands. We had Brussels, the King Bodine Stadium. In Bruges, we had the Jan Bredral Stadium. In Liège, we had Stade Maurice de France. And in Charleroi, Stade du Pays de Charleroi. In the Netherlands, we had the Amsterdam Arena. We had the Kip in Rotterdam. We had the Philips Stadium in Eindhoven. And the Gelre Dome. In Arnhem, home of Vietas, obviously. No need for every stadium to be 60 plus thousand because there wasn't going to be that kind of outturn or turnout for some of the games, as there won't be at all tournaments. We had 16 teams, which is the correct amount for the European Championships. In Group A, we had Germany, Romania, Portugal and England. In Group B, we've got Belgium, Sweden, Turkey and Italy. In Group C, Spain, Norway, Yugoslavia, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, I should say, and uh, Slovenia. And in Group D, the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, France and Denmark. So let's dig into these squads. The England squad, an old David Seaman, you had both Neville brothers. You had Saul Campbell, Tony Adams, Martin Keown, Gareth Southgate, Gareth Barry. It's a strong group of defenders. The other goalkeepers in the squad were Nigel Martin and a young Richard Wright, who had only one cap going into the competition. In midfield, England were loaded. You had, there's a name that's going to stand out in my opinion for all the wrong reasons. You had David Beckham, you had Paul Scholes, Steve McManaman, Paul Ince, a very young Stephen Gerrard, Nicky Barmby, and Dennis Wise, 33 years of age, well past his best, and somehow scavenging away into the England squad. And in attack, you had Alan Shearer, Michael Owen, Emil Heskey, Kevin Phillips, and Robbie Fell. That's a very, very strong England squad under Kevin Keegan. The Germans, managed by Eric Ribbick, whose tenure as Germany manager 
is probably best confined to history. Um, he took over after the 98 World Cup and was dismissed after this competition. Well, I think he might have resigned before he was dismissed, but either way, uh, it wasn't great. The squad wasn't dreadful, though. You had Oliver Kahn, who you could have made a case for at this point being the best goalkeeper in the world. You had Jens Lehmann and Hans-Jörg Butz, so a strong group of goalkeepers. Defensively, you had Marcus Babel, Marco Raymer, who wasn't great, Thomas Linke, who was solid, Jans Novotny, very, very good centre-back, Lothar Mateus. This was a step too far. He, he shouldn't have been at this tournament. And Christian Ziege. In midfield, you had Marco Boda, Mehmet Scholl, Thomas Hassler, Michael Balak, Didi Haman, Darius Vos, Jens Jeremies, Sebastian Deisler, who is the great lost German talent, and Karsten Ramelow. And in attack, Ulf, Kir- Ulf Kirsten, Hello Rink, Karsten Janker, and the hero of 96, Oliver Bierhoff. <coughs> the Portuguese, Vitor Bahia, legendary figure at Porto. Jorg Costa, legendary figure at Porto. Uh, Rui George, Jose Luis Vidigal, don't remember him. Fernando Couto had a great career with with Parma, with uh, Lazio, and obviously beforehand in Portugal. Paulo Sosa, actually, do you know what? Let me just rearrange these and get back to doing them position by position. Goalkeepers, Bailly is the standout. The other two are Pedro Espina and Quim. Uh, Quim was not very good. Uh, George Costa, Rui George, um, Fernando Couto, Dimas Teixeira, Abel Xavier at the time of Everton, later Liverpool, Beto, Carlos Secretario, who was a, a solid right back, uh, Jose Luis Vidigal, Paulo Sosa, Rui Costa, and Luis Figo. They're the, the big three, really. In midfield, you've also got Sergio Conceição, who was a very, very good winger, could play either side, obviously now manager of Porto, was part of an important couple of years at Lazio as, a, as an important squad player and spot starter. Well, not spot starter, he was a pretty regular starter, but wouldn't have been in their best 11. Uh, Costinha, who at this point wasn't all that well known, he's at Monaco, it would be later under Mourinho at Porto when he would really established himself. Uh, Paolo Bento and Capuccio. In attack, you had João Pinto, Ricardo Sapinto, Paleta, and Nuno Gomes. Now, João Pinto is the standout figure here. But at that time, his career was in a weird place where he was at Benfica, and he was the guy at Benfica. The line was Benfica is Joe Pinto and 10 others. It was, it was all about him. <clears throat> and they turned down mega money moves for him to leave. He had huge offers to go to Italy, to go to Spain. And Benfica re- routinely turned the bids down. All while costing him a fortune. Because he was on a very good wage compared to you and me. But... Comparatively to his peers, he was on significantly less. And if they wanted to keep him there and have him as their icon, they should have been paying him for that role. 
And when he went and demanded more money, which took years, that he finally got to the point where he was like, look, you need to pay me properly now. I've been here. I've done everything. I carry this team. You need to pay me properly. They released him from, from his contract. He still had a year left, and they released him from his contract rather than pay him what he was, what he was due. So at this time, he's actually a free agent. He would sign for Sporting, basically two fingers up to Benfica to move to Sporting. Um, and then he would go to Boa Vista, where he'd been originally, came through their academy, left, came back after a spell with uh, Atletico Madrid's B team as a young player, he was only 19, 20, back to Boa Vista, then, Boa Vista, then to Benfica. He was such a talented player. Such a talented player. If you look at that, that was called the golden generation of Portuguese football, and it was the five standout players. Figo, Costa, Sosa, Couto, and him. He was the most talented of all of them. And he had the worst career of all of them in a lot of ways. Made the least impact on the global game. Now, he was tremendous for Benfica. He was really good for the national team, but never got to show what he was capable of on the bigger stages. Um, moving on then to Romania, uh, Bogdan Lepont, people will remember him, Bogdan Stelia, Florian Prunia, he was around a long, long time. Uh, Dan Petrescu, still knocking around. Uh, Julian Filipescu, G.K. Papescu's in this squad as well. A very young Christian Kivu. This was sort of the first uh, international spotting of him. He was at Ajax. He was making his name, but this was the first time anyone really got to know him. Cosman Contra uh, would become quite well known after this tournament uh, and would do very well for Alaves. Uh, Georgie Hadji is still in the squad. Uh, Johan Lepescu is still in the squad. Adrian Mutu is a very young addition to this squad. Uh, Moldovan, formerly of Coventry, is in this squad. Adrian Illy. I always liked Adrian Illy. He was a good player. Um, pretty pretty strong Romanian squad. On to Belgium. And again, we're just going to pick spot starters, uh, spot players here. We won't go through every single name. But this isn't a... This isn't a, a, a a classic Belgian squad. You do have new Rangers coach, uh, Philippe Clement in there, Emile Empenza, uh, Luke Nillis, very briefly of Aston Villa. Mark Hendricks, no relation. Uh, Bart Gore, not a great, not a great squad. And, and Bo Empenza, the, the older brother of Emile, the less talented Empenza, he's there as well. Uh, on to the Italians, who obviously will play a big part in this tournament. Goalkeepers, no Buffon. He broke his hand in a warm-up just before the tournament started. He was to be the number one. So going into the squad, going, going into the, the the championship, it was to be Buffon as first choice. Then Toldo was the backup. He only had eight caps. And then Antonioli was the, the third choice. Buffon gets hurt. All of a sudden, Toldo is the first choice with eight caps. Abiati comes in, a very young Christian Abiati, no caps. And Antonioli had no caps. So you've got eight caps between the three keepers. Uh, in defense, they're very, very strong, as always. Uh, Chiro Ferrara, tremendous player for Juve. 
the great Paolo Maldini, Fabio Cannavaro, Paolo Negro, Gianluca Pesata, Alessandro Nesta and Mark Giuliano. That's a really, really strong defensive group. Midfield, you've got Albertini, you've got Delivio, you've got Conte, you've got DiBaggio, you've got Ambrosini, you've got Zambrotta, and you've got Stefano Fiore. There's some individual talent there, but the collective is stronger than the individual pieces. Albertini is clearly the best player of the group. Though Zambrotta had a great career, obviously more so when he moved to fullback. In attack, you've got Inzaghi, you've got Del Piero, you've got Montella, you've got Totti, and you've got Del Vecchio. So again, the Italians are very, very strong, but there is a major question mark over the goalkeeping situation because of the absence of Buffon. It's not like Buffon was hugely established at this point. It's not like Buffon had, you know, already made his name. He was coming into this tournament with, I think, 12 or 13 caps. So he wasn't hugely experienced at the international level either, but he'd shown what he could do. And it was clear he was going to be one of the best keepers in the world. We didn't know he was going to be the best ever, but we knew he was going to be really good. Uh, The Swedes, Patrick Anderson and Joachim Bjorklund as the centre-backs is a standout. Roland Nielsen, a very, very experienced player, obviously. At right back, more a squad player, I think, at this point. Well, maybe he was the first choice, but at 36, he was definitely past his best. uh, Formerly of Sheffield Wednesday and later Coventry on two occasions. Freddie Lumberg is in this squad. Uh, Hakan Mild is in this squad. Uh, who else? We have Olaf Melberg, a young Olaf Melberg. Jan, Johan Mialbi of Celtic, decent player. Kenneth Anderson, the longtime striker, is in the squad. And of course, the great Henrik Larsson, also in the squad. The Turks then. Rustu Rekbar was first choice goalkeeper. And he's probably the best player in the squad. Uh, Defensively, nobody that jumps out to me. Uh, In midfield, you've got got two guy who was a really good player. Um, Sergin Yeltsin was a very good player. Muzzy is it. It was was not a very good player, but he's a solid player. Won nine caps. Um, Born in London. Father was Turkish, mother was English. Came through the Chelsea Academy, having originally been with with Charlton, but it was Leicester where he really made his name and had his career. Um, he would finish off at, at Birmingham, but he was eight years at Leicester and he was a big part of that team with Martin O'Neill. Him and him and Neil Lennon in midfield <clears throat> with Robbie Savage. Steve Guppy was in that team. It was a pretty good Emil Heskey there, Steve Claridge. It's a pretty good Leicester team, to be fair. Won, won multiple cups, uh, two league cups, runners up in a third. Helped them get promoted. They were a, what we call now a championship team when he when he joined first. Uh, had the most assists in the Premier League in the 03-04 season and was in the PFA team of the season in the championship one year. Uh, all with Leicester. Um, Hakan Suker, the, the greatest Turkish striker of all time, now confined to exile. Um, he lives in exile in San Francisco, drives an Uber because his money was taken away. 
after falling out with Erdogan, um, who he had previously been quite close with. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it. He had a great career. His records, they've tried to strike them from the history books, but you can't forget what a great player he was for, for the national team and for Galatasaray. Never really worked from anywhere else. He did, didn't work at Torino, didn't work at Inter or Parma, had a failed spell at Blackburn. But in the Turkish league, he just plundered goals. And I've absolutely outrageous marksman. Tremendous player. Uh, on to Group C then, the Yugoslavs. Mihailovic is still there. Yukanovic is there. Jugovic, Stojkovic, Savo Milosevic, Darko Kovacevic. It's not a vintage squad by any means, but there's still a lot of talent there. Uh, the Norwegians then, uh, lots of British-based players. There was a, just a spell where all British teams wanted at least one Norwegian. So you've got Thomas Mira. He was a decent goalkeeper for many years a year. Henning Berg, Vigard Hegem of Liverpool, John, Jan, uh, John Arnorisa, who would join Liverpool from Monaco. Uh, Dan Egan knocked around for a long time. Stiginga Bjornaby's there as Liverpool provide two fullbacks to the group. I forgot Stiginga Bjornaby was still a Liverpool player in the year 2000. He did leave that summer and joined Blackburn. Um, Stella Solbakken, who's become quite well known as a manager, Tori Andre Flo, and John Carew forming what has to be the tallest strike force of all time. You also have Stefan Everson and Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, so it's a really good group of strikers. But John Carew is 6'5. Tori Andre Flo is, they say 6'4. I think he was taller than that. If you don't remember Tori Andre Flo, just think Peter Crouch. Basically the same type of thing. That's got to be that's got to be the tallest um the tallest pair of strikers ever. Uh John Carew is currently in prison. Which I didn't know. For tax evasion. He's due to get out, I think, the end of the year. He's taken his punishment. He hasn't tried to deny what he did. Um, Carew pleaded guilty to acting grossly negligently in regard to his taxes, but not with intent to defraud. He got 14 months in prison and a 537,000 Norwegian kroner fine. I don't know how much that is, but his tax evasion amounted to 5.4 million kroner. Uh, I have no idea how much that that is in in euro or pounds, but it it seems like it's probably a lot. Um, John Crew was a good player. Never lived up to his talent. Like he he should have been a lot better. He had everything. He was huge. He was lightning quick. Good technical skills. He was good for Valencia. Did decently at Aston Villa, not so well at Stoke or or West Ham, but he was a very good player over the years. 
Um, but yeah, I, I can't think of many taller strike partnerships than those two. Uh, Slovenia. There's one name that's going to stand out. And aside from that, I don't think there's anyone else. The name that stands out is obviously Zlatko Zavic. Zlatko Zavic was a tremendous number 10. Really fun playmaker. Played for Partizan, Vittorio Gimeric, Porto, Olympiacos, Valencia, Benfica. 80 caps for Slovenia. Just a really, really fun player to watch. Proper number 10. There was no no messing with, with him. He, he wasn't getting involved in things like off-ball work. You know, he wasn't he wasn't gonna besmirch his own talents by running after the ball. No, no. If he ran after the ball, he might not have as much energy to run with the ball. And if he couldn't run with the ball, then what was the point of playing the game? If he was too fatigued to see the pass, then the game was spoiled. So he'd just stand about and wait for the ball to come to him, and then he would come alive. And he was tremendous on the ball. Um, Very, very fun player. I think one of the few players who's universally popular with Porto fans and Benfica fans that played for both clubs. No. Uh, Spain. Goalkeepers. Santiago, Santiago Canizares. A very young Iker Casillas, who had one cap at the time. Defenders, you've got Salgado, you've got Aranzabal, you've got the great Fernando Hierro. In midfield, you've got Pep Guardiola, Ivan Helguera, who'd obviously moved back to centre-back and become more known as a centre-back. Uh, Gerard, who was a tremendous part of some really good, um, a really good team at Valencia. And would then move to Barcelona and just kind of not, not really develop into the player he was expected to be. Uh, and his career was very disappointing after this point. To this point, he'd been tremendous. He'd been so such a standout. There was teams queuing up to get him. Barca paid a fortune for him. And it just didn't work out. Um, I'll come back to both of them. You've got Alfonso Perez. We talked about him for a couple of reasons. Pedro Menitez, who I always liked. And you've got Raul. A young Raul, only 22, but already established as kind of Spain's best player. But my two favourite players in this squad, after Fernando Hierro, who's always going to stand out for me, Juan Carlos Valeron, who was another number 10 who took offence to the notion that he might want to, you know, work a bit harder off the ball, uh, who basically demolished the myth that you needed pace or even the ability to really run to be a very good footballer. Uh, He was part of a magnificent Deportivo La Coruña team, stayed with them through some bad times, was very, very good for Las Palmas. Had been really good for Atletico Madrid before he joined Depor. But for for 13 years, he was kind of that 
when you thought of Depp or you thought of him, he was that player. Um, I, I loved watching him play because he just, it was all about talent and intelligence with him. Like he was so smart. He just saw the game steps ahead of everybody else. Could pick any pass, could score a goal, would beat players with his dribbling. And what I always liked about him was if he picked the ball up in a bit of space and was driving towards goal and you got midfielders chasing back at him, he'd know they were going to catch him. So rather than try and run faster, he'd run slower and he'd let them sail past him. And then he'd just turn in a different direction and go and do something different with it. It's just so much fun. Ahead of his return to the Estadio Reazor in 2016, Deportivo manager Victor Sanchez said he would have won the Ballon d'Or if he played for a more fashionable club. I don't think that's an outrageous claim. I really don't. Didn't have, like, he, he retired with one Copa del Rey, one Supercopa, an Intertoto Cup, and he won the Secunda Division having stayed with them when they got relegated the first time. Um, and that's it. That's it for his career. And he deserved so much more. He was he was such a great player. Both Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank and Roy McKay have said he's the best player they ever played with. Now, think about the careers that both of them had and who they would have played with. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank with Leeds, Real, uh, Atletico Madrid, Chelsea, played with stars. Um, Roy McKay was a, a goal machine for Bayern after his spell with Depor. A, a really good players at Bayern at that point. But yet he says that this is the best player I played with. And look, the numbers, he was an absolute machine for Depor. And that him nine, uh, Valeron 10 combination was sensational, as good as anything in Europe at the time. And the other player I loved is Guy Scamendietta. Absolutely adored him for for Valencia for a long time. He was part of those really good Hector Cooper teams. It's such a shame that it didn't work out at Lazio, but unfortunately for him, in that Lazio midfield, the best role for him was Stankovic's role. He was signed to replace Nedved, and it didn't work. It just didn't work. They'd also obviously lost Veron and they weren't nearly as good. But he was such a good player. I enjoyed him when he was at Middlesbrough. Spent he spent a few years at Borough. Um he obviously had a spell at Barca as well, but he was a tremendous player. Great technical level, really good off the ball, could score, scored some sensational goals over the years. Like that last four years at Valencia, 10 and 35, 12 and 54, 19 and 51, and 14 and 47. Under Hector Cooper, a defensive minded coach, playing in midfield, not playing in an attacking role. Tremendous player. Uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Pavel Cernicek, longtime Premier League goalkeeper, Thomas Repka. I always like Thomas Repka good hard man defender no 
no fluff, no bluster, just booted people up in the air. Really good for West Ham for a number of years. Uh, Yuri Novotny, solid enough defender as well. Karol Paborski, Patrick Berger, Jan Kohler, Vladi Schmitzer. But again, there's, there's two standout names here for me. Two players that I just I love watching. I still love going back and watching their their games. One is Pavel Nedved. Um, it was at, at Lazio that I kind of first just decided he was he was one of the ones I was going to really go all in on. And then he was such a good player for Juve then after that. Um, very unfortunate that the year he won his Ballon d'Or, 2003, Thierry Henry had an outrageous season. And there's this notion that his Ballon d'Or is unwarranted. And look, there, I, w- I would say Henri probably should have won the Ballon d'Or that year. But Nedved was incredible for Juve. The best player on a team that won Serie A, which at the time was still the best league in Europe, drove them to a Champions League final, missed the final. Had he played, I think they beat Milan. Just a great, great player. Won four league titles with Juve. Obviously, two of them were taken back, but he won them. Won the title with Lazio. Had also won a title previously with Sparta Prague. Just a tremendous player. Versatile. Could do everything. Boat-footed. The most powerful arse in football. That There was a study done about why his, he was such a powerful runner. And apparently it was because of his arse muscles and how, how strong he was in that region. Um... Unfortunately, he's been caught up in the the recent scandals at Juventus, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that he's he's one of my favourite players of all time. And then a player who I maintain is maybe the most unfortunate player of the last 30 years, Thomas Rizicki. What a player. Little Mozart. Super talented, came through Sparta Prague, went to Dortmund, was at Dortmund under... Matthias Sammer was part of that Dortmund team that won the Bundesliga. Him behind Amoruso and I think Jürgen Koller. No, not Jürgen Koller. The big guy. Oh, I just... Koller. Jan... Yeah, Jan Koller, that's him. That from three. Koller at 6'8". Like 6'8", impossible to, to deal with in the air. Amoruso, who's largely been forgotten for how good he was, um, in part because it was such a short a short spell in Europe for him. Like He was with Udinese, unfashionable club, went to Parma, it didn't go great. Went to, to, to Dortmund and he was outrageous in the first season and then he just started to break down with injuries. And unfortunately, his career just petered out. But he was very much a favourite of mine and for a couple of years was one of the best players uh, one of the best players around. But Riziki was the one that made that team tick as a number 10. Just so inventive, great dribbler, incredible ball control, incredible balance. 
fantastic, fantastic player. Started to get injured when he was at Dortmund. Moved to Arsenal. They paid decent enough money to get him, if memory serves. Uh, an undisclosed fee, it says here. But as far as I remember, they paid decent enough money for the time to bring him in. And unfortunately, just he, he couldn't stay fit. Like He's missing 10 games every Premier League season as a minimum. Misses an entire season in 08 09, you know, has multiple seasons under 20 appearances in the Premier League. Very, very unfortunate. Such a good player. And when he played, even towards the end at Arsenal, when he was old and it was years past his best, he was still a genius to watch. Still had this guile and this composure about him. Absolutely fantastic player. Um, the Danes, Peter Schmeichel still knocking about. Jan Heinze, Thomas Helweg, Martin Larison, Alan Nielsen at the time of, of Tottenham, Stig Tofting, Jesper Gronkjaer, John Dole Thomason, who would end up at Newcastle, fail, end up at Milan and end up having a good career, but just didn't work out at Newcastle. And Mikkel Beck, um, formerly of Middlesbrough. Uh, I think he had been sold to Derby, loaned a bunch of times after not settling in. He was a good player. No Loudrups, most notably, about that team. Uh, the French, what a squad. You've got goalkeepers, you've got Barthez, obviously. You've got Bernard Lama. In defence, you've got Candela, you've got Lazarazu, you've got Blanc, you've got Desai, you've got Turam, you've got Leboeuf. That's the World Cup winning group. In midfield, you've got Vieira, you've got Jorkaev, you've got Deschamps, Zidane, Perez. Perez at this point, far more established. Uh, Johan Miku, um, talented player that just never, never reached his potential. Like he was really good, really good with Cannes and Bordeaux, really good with, with Werder Bremen. But the big move he got was to Parma in 2000, off the back of these Euros, and it just didn't work out at all for him. He just couldn't settle. You've got Emmanuel Petit, you've got Christian, Christian Carambu. So Aside from Miku, I think, yeah, Miku's the only midfielder there that wasn't in the World Cup squad. And then in attack, you've got Anelka, you've got Henri, you've got Viltord, you've got Trezeguet, and you've got Dugarry. That's a hell of a group. That is an unbelievably strong forward group. Sylvain Viltord, very, very underrated historically. Um, Never a great player, but a very good player for a long time. Christoph Dugarry didn't live up to the hype and the potential, but was very, very good. And, you know, Trezeguet was great. Henri, at this point, had joined Arsenal and was getting ready to create the greatest legacy, I think, in Premier League history. And Nicolas Anelka, who'd shown what he could do at Arsenal, moved on to Real Madrid didn't really work for him, ends up going to PSG, goes to Liverpool on loan. And then he has a journeyman career, which is unfortunate. 
Because if Nicholson Alcott could have just had one stable environment where he stayed for six to eight years, I, I think we would talk about him in a much different light. I really do. I think if Gerard Julia had made the decision to keep him and not waste money on El Hajj Juff, I think Nicholas Analka would be talked about in the very elite terms for the Premier League. He was unfortunate to miss out on the World Cup squad in uh, 98. It was the 98-99 season. He had his real breakthrough, but here we go. Uh, finally, the Netherlands then. Edwin van der Sar, Ed de Hoy of Chelsea and Sander Westerfeld of Liverpool, who would go on to win the treble with them the following year. Michael Reitziger, Yap Stam, Frank de Boer, Giovanni van Bronckhorst, Arthur Newman, really strong defensive group. Seedorf, Davids, Overmars, Ronald de Boer, Aaron Vinter, Philippe Koku, really good midfield. Clivert, Burkamp, Van Hooydonk and Roy Mackay. Like, the Dutch had as much talent as anybody. But being the Dutch, they just found new and exciting ways to make a mess of it. So into the groups, we'll start with Group A. Germany, Romania, 1-1. Surprise result. Mehmet Scholl equalising for Germany after Moldovan had put Romania 1-0 up. Portugal beat England 3-2. Scholes had scored first. McManaman had scored second. England were 2-0 up and flying after 18 minutes. Figo and Pinto equalised before half-time. And Nuno Gomes scored the winner. And England... Well, England did what England did. Uh, in the next round, Portugal beat Romania 1-0 through a Castinha goal in the 94th minute, and England beat Germany. Alan Shearer scoring the only goal of the game. So England, having thrown away the first game, have now made up for it, and they're in a decent position. They've got Romania, you think, they're going through. Portugal, meanwhile, beat Germany 3-0. Conceição gets a hat-trick. They confirm their qualification in the next round. All England need is a draw. A draw will put them through. They go 1-0 down, Kivu scores, then Shearer equalises, and then Owen puts them ahead just before half-time. And you think, that's it. England will just go on, cruise through this, and they'll win. Muntianu scores on 48, and then on 89 minutes... Phil Neville starting at left back. Both Neville's were were the starting fullbacks in this one. Uh, he just makes a really lazy, silly tackle in his own box. And he'd made one like this in the United Arsenal FA Cup semi-final replay, you'll remember. Burkamp's penalty was saved by Schmeichel. He makes another one here and Ganea steps up and David Seaman can't be the, the hero. Ganea scores, it's the 89th minute and England are out. So we get Portugal through, we get Romania through, and England and Germany are gone home. In Group B, Belgium 2, Sweden 1. Gore and Emil Penza put Belgium 2 and up. Johan Malby gets one back for Sweden, but they can't find an equaliser. Italy beat Turkey 2-1. Conte and Inzaghi with the goals. Burek with the Turkish goal. Then Italy beat Belgium 2-0. Totti and Fiore score. Sweden and Turkey play at a 0-0 draw. Turkey beat Belgium 2-0. Hakan Suker gets both, both goals. And Italy 
beat Sweden 2-1. DiBiagio scores. Larson equalises. But it's a late Del Piero goal to make sure Italy marched through with the perfect three wins from three. Turkey joined them and out go Belgium and Sweden. In Group C, Norway beat Spain 1-0. Stefan Everson with the opening with the only goal of the game. Yugoslavia and Slovenia play at a 3-3 draw. Savo Milosevic gets two. Zavic gets two. Drulovic scored the other for Yugoslavia and Pavlin scored the other for Slovenia. Then Slovenia lost 2-1 to Spain. Raul and Echeverria score. Zahavic scores again. Yugoslavia beat Norway 1-0. Milosevic scores. And then in the final round, Yugoslavia 3, Spain 4. Now, Spain were gone. They were done. Milosevic had put Yugoslavia 1-up. Alfonso had equalised. Govodarovic had scored, Govodaric, yeah, he scored on 50. And then the fellow who scored in the, uh, sorry, and then Munitez equalized on 51. The fellow who scored the goals in the 98 World Cup, whose name I didn't even try and pronounce, whose name I'm not going to pronounce now, he scores in Yugoslavia 3-2 up. And we hit 90 minutes. And there's three minutes of stoppage time. 91 minutes, still 3-2. 92, still 3-2. 93, still 3-2. And then Yugoslavia give away a penalty. And Mendieta steps up in the 94th minute and scores. And because of the delay for that penalty, the referee decides, I'm going to add on a bit more time here. And Alfonso scores in the 95th minute to turn a draw into a win. It should have been a defeat into a win. And Spain are through. In the other game, Slovenia and Norway played out a nil-nil draw. Uh, Shame for Slovenia. So Spain go through. Yugoslavia finish second. And Norway go out along with Slovenia. When the Spain game was due to end, Norway were finishing second behind Yugoslavia. And Spain were gone. Into Group D. Netherlands, sorry, we'll start with France 3, Denmark 0, Laurent Blanc, Thierry Henry and Sylvain Viltord with the goals. And that team, that team is their World Cup team with the exception of Anelka is starting up front instead of Dugari or Givarch. Same goalkeeper, same back four, same midfield. Uh, Henri was sort of a hit and miss starter in the World Cup, but he's he's nailed on now. Uh, Netherlands won, Czech Republic nil. Frank de Boer with the only goal, an 89th minute penalty. Czech Republic won, France two. Henri scores, Paborski equalized from a penalty, and Jorkaev gets the winner. Denmark nil, the Netherlands three. Clivert, Ronald de Boer, and Zenden with the goals. Denmark nil, Czech Republic two, Schmitzer gets both. And then in the final game, France two, Netherlands three, Jugari scores, 
Clivert equalizes, Trezeguet scores, De Boer equal, Frank De Boer equalizes, and then Zenden gets the winner. And the Netherlands go through top of the group with six points, France, sorry, with nine points, France on six points, the Czech Republic and the Danes go out. We go into the quarterfinals, and the first quarterfinal is Portugal against Turkey. And Nuno Gomes gets both goals as Turkey as Portugal beat Turkey 2-0. Italy 2, Romania 0, Totti and Inzaghi with the goals. Netherlands 6, Yugoslavia 1. A hat-trick for Clivert, an own goal by the name, the fellow whose name I butchered in, in the last round, and 2 for Mark Overmars. Savo Milosevic with a very late consolation that meant absolutely nothing. And then France 2, Spain 1. Zidane scores. Mendieta equalizes from the penalty spot. Djorkaev puts France back ahead just before half time. And Spain are out. France are through. France haven't looked particularly convincing as yet, but they are marching into the semi finals where they take on Portugal, who've been in one of the more impressive teams in the tournament so far. Nuno Gomes puts Portugal one up. Henri equalises. Game ends 1-1. Goes to extra time. 117 minutes in. France win a penalty. Zidane steps up. Zidane scores. It's a golden goal. It's game over. In the second semi-final... It's Italy versus the Netherlands. Game ends 0-0. Extra time ends 0-0. And we go to penalties. Di Biagio scores. Frank De Boer misses, which was a surprise because he was a really good penalty taker. Pesato scores. Yapstam takes maybe the worst penalty ever. It goes about 400 miles over the crossbar. Totti scores, Clivert scores. Maldini misses and gives the Netherlands potentially a lifeline, but Bosfeld misses and out go the second host nation. And we are set for a final of France versus Italy, the World Cup champions against an Italian side that have, in many ways, just grinded their way to this final in typical Italian fashion. These are two really good teams, though. There's just world-class players everywhere. So the Italians, Toldo and Goal, a back three of Cannavaro, Nesta, and Juliano. That's not bad. Juliano's not on the same level as the other two. He was really good. Wing-backs are Pissotto and Maldini. In midfield, you've got Albertini and Di Biagio sitting in front of the defence and Stefano Fiore playing as a 10. And then you've got Totti and Del Vecchio up front. Now, there's been, since that day, there's been major question marks about why he didn't go more adventurous, why he didn't play Del Piero as the second striker and Totti as the 10. There's been some people who have said that Del Vecchio shouldn't have uh, shouldn't have started, but the guy scored in the final. He scored the opening goal in the final. So I don't think you can really re uh, litigate that one, but you know, it is what it is. The France team, again, Barthez, Turam, Desailly, Blanc, Lazarazu, 
Vieira has come into the team for Emmanuel Petit, next to Deschamps in the double pivot. Jorkaev, Zidane and Henri behind Dugarry, who's won his place back. Um, even the players coming off the bench, Del Piero, Ambrosini was decent, not great, but uh, Montella. And for the Italians, you've got Viltord, you've got Trezeguet, you've got Perez. So Del Vecchio scores on 55. I thought, I thought France were going to blow them away because Italy had more of the ball, but it was a lot of stale possession, sterile stuff, just keeping the ball. France really did force the narrative and were just lethal on the counterattack down that left wing. Delvecchio scores, Italy go one up, and then it is literally France banging on the door, banging on the door, banging on the door. And it looked like the Italians were just going to be able to hold themselves. And it looked like they were going to see this out. It really did. But then in the 94th minute, Sylvain Viltord scores. Whether or not Taldo was injured, I I don't know, but he got injured after that, but he he didn't look right before that. He'd come for a corner and he'd try to punch it, and he, he was hobbling a little bit before that. But this goal, Bartes, it's it's literally, it's route one stuff. Bartes pumps the long free kick. Trezeguet heads it on. Viltord controls it. Gets the shot away. Goes through Nesta's legs. I thought Taldo should have saved it, and I still think Taldo should have saved it. We go to extra time. And Cannavaro plays a simple ball to Albertini. He miscontrols it. Perez gets the ball away, beats both of them, crosses to Trezeguet. It's an outrageous goal. It's a great, great finish. And France win because it's golden goal rules. And France are crowned European Championship, uh, Euro- European champions to go with being world champions. They weren't the best team in the tournament. The Netherlands were the best team in the tournament. The Netherlands bottled it in the semifinals. The Netherlands had played brilliantly, but they just bottled it in the semifinal against the Italians. The Italians just wore them out. The team of the tournament, the goalkeepers were Bartes and Toldo, fair enough. The defence was Blanc, Desai, Turam, Cannavaro, Maldini, Nesta and Frank de Boer. Again, that's fair enough. In midfield, Vieira, Zidane, Albertini, Davids, Costa, Figo and Pep Guardiola. My view of it is that there should have been another Dutch midfielder in that team of the tournament because I thought Clarence Seedorf was very good. I thought he could have made a strong case for Ronald De Boer. But I don't really have any arguments with any of the players that were actually picked because I do think they all had really good tournaments. Uh, The Fords, Milosevic, 
Henri, Totti, Clivert, Nuno Gomes and Raul. Zlatko Zavic should have been one of the players of the tournament. Uh, you look at the goals he scored in a bad team. Uh, speaking of goals, uh, Savo Milosevic got five, Patrick Clivert got five. So they shared the golden boot. Uh, Nuno Gomes got four, Henri, Zahovic, and Sergio, Sergio Conceição got three each. Schmitzer, Shearer, Jorkaev, Trezeguet, Viltord, Zidane, Inzaghi, Totti, Frank de Boer, Mark Overmars, Zenden, Alfonso, Geike Mendieta, and Hakan Suker all got two. There were 85 goals scored in 31 matches. That's an average of 2.74 goals per game. But we only really had the one hammering. Most of the games in this competition were fairly even. Most of the games in this competition felt competitive. Zidane was voted player of the tournament. Uh, Stefano Fiore won goal of the tournament, although I'm not sure it was official. But he scored an absolute belter against the Belgians. Um, This was a really good tournament. It really was. It felt... It felt like we had a lot of strong teams in Europe at this point. And, you know, even like, think of it, England and Germany went home after the group stage. They were good England and Germany teams. They weren't bad teams at all. The the Czechs were a good team. They went home in the group stage. And for me, this is how it should be. It should be the best of the best at these tournaments. I I get wanting to be inclusive and, you know, I, I'm all for players getting to have these incredible moments of living out their dreams and playing in international tournaments for the nations. But from a fan point of view, I, I just don't think it adds to the tournament. I think it takes away from the tournament when you've got bad teams in these competitions. Now, like I said earlier, like I'm delighted for Albania. I'll be thrilled for Luxembourg, but is it making the competition better? Probably not. Um, your, your England golden generation 11. Oh, Jesus wept. So the midfield, they've so the, the team that they've picked, Pickford, absolutely not. Walker at right back. I mean, England haven't had a particularly great right back at any point. Um, John Terry and Saul Campbell. Just no. Now, actually, I can pick mine. Let's go. So, to be fair, they've hamstrung it because they've the goalkeepers they've given are James... Pickford, Pope, Ramsdale, Robinson, and Ian Walker. How's Ian Walker in this mix? That's an attempt to make it look like it's Pickford, but I'm going to pick Nick Pope. Uh, Right back, it's going to be Trent. He's the best English right back that I've ever seen. Left back will obviously be Ashley Cole. Now, at centre back, they've given me Campbell, Carragher, Gwehi, Slabhead, John Stones, John Terry, and Tamori. How's that right? How is that? Again, that's an attempt to try and force in certain narratives. Also odd that Rio Ferdinand isn't there. 
Like, he wouldn't be in my team anyway, but Rio Ferdinand's not there. Ledley King isn't there. On this basis, it does have to be Terry next to Campbell. Uh, in midfield, Gerard is in. Do I have to play this crap formation? No. Uh, give me... Right. Skulls is definitely going to be in. Beckham is going in. Like, I'm not putting in Jude Bellingham. He's got 20 caps or whatever. Um, Jack Grealish. Lampard. Where's Michael Carrick? Why is Michael Carrick not on this list? Because I want a balanced team, I'm actually going to pick Owen Hargreaves. So I've got Beckham, Skulls, Hargreaves, Gerrard, which is the midfield that Senor Gorn Eriksson wanted to play. That was to be Sven's midfield. Up front, I mean, it's got to be Kane because there's no Shearer. And it's got to be Rooney. Although, do you know what? I'm going to go Owen and Rooney because Michael Owen was such an outrageous talent that I, I, I think I can't believe how people just overlook him. Not happy with the goalkeeper. I don't know how that's the goalkeeper list they give. Not really happy with John Terry being there. Give me Tony Adams over Terry. Give me Seaman over Pope. And as an England team of the last 35 years, I'd put that up against absolutely anybody. <clears throat> Especially because I then have the depth of Lampard off the bench, Terry off the bench, um, Carrick off the bench, Kane, Rashford. Yeah, happy enough with that. Right, on to the gossip. Uh, Roma boss Jose Mourinho is expected to leave the club when his contract expires at the end of the season with no talks lined up about extending his deal. Former Chelsea, Juve, Tottenham manager Antonio Conte says he would one day be interested in managing Napoli or Roma. I would love to see him get the Napoli job because they desperately need a new manager. Um, Juventus are continuing to monitor Pierre-Emil Hoysberg. Manchester United are targeting Mark Guehi. Qatari banker Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Al-Tani could turn his attempts to Tottenham. So Jim Radcliffe's plan to completely overhaul Manchester United Football Club are said to be welcomed by Eric Ten Hag as part of his desire to raise the standards. Um, he, he, fair enough. Ten Hag is unlikely to be given much money for the transfer market if Radcliffe's proposed bid is ex- accepted as financial fair play restrictions make it difficult for any investor to pr- provide extra resources for use on signings. And also because... Ten Hag has spent and wasted an absolute fortune. Uh, Aston Villa are considering offering Leon, Leon Bailey a new contract. I think they have to. Uh, Arsenal are confident of agreeing a new deal with Ben White. Well, nobody else wants him, so I mean, he's going to be happy, and he's happy there. So, you know, fair enough. Uh, Manchester City and West Ham are expected to try to sign Ian Matson. 
interesting. I think a lot of clubs will be in for him. Everton are interested in, in Corinthians, Brazilian winger Wesley Cas- Ga- Gasova, Gasova? Uh, but they face competition from sp- teams in Spain and Portugal. Uh, Malik Thiel wants to stay at AC Milan despite interest from Real Madrid and West Ham. Not many players will have interest from AC from Real Madrid and West Ham. It's quite a gap, really, there, isn't there? Uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach will trigger a clause to extend Manu Kone's contract so it runs till 2026. And Romeo Lavia is set to be sidelined until the end of November with an ankle injury sustained in training. Yeah, shame. Uh, Newcastle are preparing a bid for Calvin Phillips. I'm not sure a, a, a Gamerish Calvin Phillips Tenali midfield is, is something that's going to work, if I'm honest. Uh, Bayern Munich have spoken to Man City about Phillips' situation, but Joe Polinho remains their top target. AC Milan are interested in Harry Maguire. Let me confirm that they're not. My source is common sense. Uh, Manchester United could bid for Mark Wehi, as they said yesterday, the same outlet. Julian Alvarez of Manchester City is a target for Barcelona, but they've got no money, so it's unlikely to come to anything. And that's probably just his way, his, his agent wanting to get him a bigger contract. Uh, Deco has contacted Frankie de Jong's agents to discuss renewing his contract. Deco says it will be difficult for Barcelona to add to their squad in January because of their financial situation. Liverpool are among Premier League clubs interested in Jamal Musiala. I think that's his agent planting that story. Liverpool sent scouts to watch Goncalo Inacio. Uh I doubt they did. I'd say they just had scouts there because, you know, it's important to scout certain international games. I wouldn't say he was the target, but I'd be very happy if they did sign him. Liverpool are monitoring Schalke's 17-year-old German midfielder, Asan. I can't pronounce that. I'd have to hear it, and I don't. I haven't heard his name. So I don't know. Odrogo? Odrogo? I don't who knows. Um he knows, and people who know him know, but I don't know. Um but what I've read is he's exceptionally talented and people think he could be one of the next big stars in Germany. Um Victor Lindelof expects Manchester United to trigger a one year extension in his contract with twelve months left in his current deal. Johnny Evans thought he would have to retire because of injuries, but instead he's probably Manchester United's second-best defender at the moment. Former Tottenham head of recruitment Paul Mitchell is favoured to land the sporting director job at Manchester United, putting John Murtaugh's job at risk. So, uh, quick on this. Uh, The spoofer known as Ben Jacobs, you should Google Ben Jacobs Radio 5 Live. Uh, Just You should. You should just Google it and see, see what comes up. Uh, Ben Jacobs claimed he had an exclusive about this story, uh, except that I had the I paper had put it out like two hours before him. And Miguel Delaney reported it six months ago that if Ratcliffe was successful, one of the people he wanted to bring to the club was Paul Mitchell. So in no way is it an exclusive for Ben the danger Jacobs. And uh, that's it. That's all I've got today, folks. I will speak to you all tomorrow. Send in questions if you can. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.